This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. Elections have consequences. They change the entire trajectory of a nation's future. The best analogy I've ever heard is this nation's being described as a giant lumbering ship out at sea. And with each election, we pick a new captain. And with a new captain comes new rules and new regulations. And quite often, a change of course for the ship. But every course change takes time as the ship lumbers into position. But when it does reach that position, that is the direction your ship travels. Usually for three to five years at a time, depending on your country. This can change the trajectory of your economy, your strategic policies, regulations, and even the day-to-day life of every single one of your citizens. So each election cycle becomes incredibly important. Every captain changes the ship. He or she is the person who steers the ship in the right or wrong direction, who is the steady hand through a storm, or simply the person who makes sure this ship doesn't sink. These votes make a difference. But is every vote equal? Can you do something about it? What if you stand to make a lot more money with one of the candidate's policies than the other? Can you convince people to vote for your preferred candidate? Sometimes even against their own interests. Well, that's where electoral manipulation comes in. Mechanisms to skew elections in your favour. Sometimes it's as simple as shifting the narrative in an election cycle. Making sure the conversation sits on emotional or guttural arguments like abortion or gun rights, where almost no one changes their mind rather than anchoring the debate on things like healthcare, workers' rights, or even foreign policy to make sure the entire election stays in your court and you're the one holding the ball. And this can be done in a number of ways today, but we're just going to focus on the big three players. For one, we're going to focus on how nation-states meddle in other nation-states' elections, whether that be the US in the 90s, making sure that Russia doesn't fall back into communism with an election, or Russia funneling money and assistance to elections in places like Crimea. We'll go through how private companies like Cambridge Analytica use voter data from social media to not only find out which strategies work, but also find out how to persuade some groups to vote and some groups to stay at home on election day. But the first one we'll talk about is the most obvious one, the press. How one or two main papers can break a story, and then goes out to smaller papers and then onto social media. And by the time you read it on your Facebook timeline, it may not have only gone through a form of Chinese whispers, but it may be so far flung from its original story, and the origins of the facts and its credibility may be nowhere to be found. What compounds this issue and makes it even worse is that places like the UK and the US media companies are being increasingly conglomerated. So even though you may see three or four stations with the story, they may have all come from the one parent company. And if this trend continues, what will the US free press look like in a few years? And what power will they hold if they're all owned by the same one or two people? We can actually take a look into the future on that one, as this is the situation here in my home country of Australia. Some states in Australia have 93% of their newspapers owned by one person, Rupert Murdoch, head of News Corp, and owner of television stations like Sky News and Fox News. So to start this look into how to manipulate an election, let's begin with a look at Australia. 
and its now almost monopolistic press. Because what happens here today could be very much what happens in your country tomorrow. And to talk more about that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. The Fox and the Hounds I would say, um, stand back and just think for a moment. Um, Number one, Murdoch's uh, newspapers in Australia are virtually all loss-making. So why does he retain them? He's not an idiot. He retains them because they provide him with two things, political influence uh, across the nation and direct leverage against or on uh, or with the government of the day. And how does that happen if, as you say, um, uh, print readership in terms of traditional newspapers is down? Um, I think what people need to bear in mind is that in an age when uh, journalism as a profession is uh, under challenge around the country and where media, other media companies are slashing and burning to retain profitability, it becomes very, very easy to rip and read uh, what is in that morning's Murdoch newspapers, the tabloids in every state capital except Perth, uh, and the so-called National Daily, The Australian, um, and um, and take that straight into the electronic medium of the day, which is the television news uh, and, uh, and radio, and dare I say it, uh, across into um, uh, digital media and uh, wider social media as well. Kevin Rudd is a former two-time Prime Minister of Australia, an Australian representative for the UN General Assembly, a senior fellow at Harvard, an honorary professor at the University of Peking, and an expert on US-China relations. Today, though, he comes to us as a large advocate for press freedoms and is currently in the middle of a campaign to launch a royal commission in Australia into Rupert Murdoch's monopoly over the Australian press. He joins us today. So quite apart from that, there's also just the tonality uh, it creates for the national debate. And that is uh, Murdoch and his editors uh, all know precisely what they're doing. They are seeking beyond the specifics of the news of the day and the slant of the news of the day. They are sitting, setting out to define the parameters of the, uh, of the national debate. So for people who don't read the stuff, fine. But think very carefully about everyone else who is, if not directly, then is replicated through the electronic and digital media of the country. And just think uh, and bear in mind, uh, why would Murdoch hang on to this loss-making stuff uh, if it wasn't serving his political purposes, which it is? So Murdoch isn't actually made of infinite money, so he must get something back from doing all of this. You know, whether it be Seven News in Australia or Fox News in the US, what does he gain from going through all of this? Well, it's at two levels. You've got to understand Murdoch and know him, as I've met him on quite a number of occasions, to work out what his agenda is. Um, For Murdoch, there are two uh, great aphrodisiacs. Uh, One is political power itself uh, as an end in itself and the prosecution of a deeply right-wing ideological agenda, which he holds dear, which is uh, government should be small to uh, invisible and even non-existent. Two, keep taxes on companies low and as low as possible. Three, um, uh, reduce uh, the impact on corporate profits, including his own, 
by screwing down on the industrial relations system, which affects people's wages and conditions, including those who work across a news corporation. And finally, on staff, again, which ideologically matters to him uh, personally, which is climate change denialism, um, it gives him this great platform to perpetrate his anti-science view, and not just across Australia. Uh, we're kind of a small part of the jigsaw. The bigger parts of the jigsaw are what he does uh, in the United States, um, where through Fox Television, uh, his ability to uh, reinforce and act as an echo chamber to climate change denialism is huge. So it's this cocktail of, um, one, uh, his right-wing ideological agenda, which he holds to be true, uh, despite its inherent falsehood, two, some of these ideological propositions affect his corporate bottom line, um, and uh, and three, every now and then he'll jump onto something which goes hard and direct onto his bottom line. Uh, for example, the future of the National Broadband Network in Australia, which was something he campaigned viciously against because it was going to give, in his view, a leg up to one of his corporate competitors to Fox Entertainment in Australia, namely Netflix. So both in the UK, USA and Australia, there seems to be a very close relationship between certain governments and the Murdoch press. Uh, we prefer journalists getting fed big stories in exchange for cooperation with the government. Can you attest to the kind of process that plays out around this? Yeah, well, if you're in the political class across Australia, um, what most politicians do is just make a calculus. Murdoch represents 70% uh, of the print readership in Australia. And if you're from my state of Queensland, uh, he holds 13 of the 14 major newspaper titles in the state. And it's a very decentralised state, Queensland. And so if you are a serving politician, uh, Labor or Conservative, uh, it means that you will um, make life a little easier for yourself if you feed the beast. And that's what happens. One of the reasons that federally I fell out badly with the then editor of The Australian uh, was that uh, my government refused to feed the beast. Uh, we simply made sure that we were doing regular press conference, putting all the news information out there for people uh, across all the media outlets and uh, the editor of The Australian, Mitchell, made it very clear to me that this was not on. This is not the way that John Howard operated. He would open up uh, the cabinet bag of a Sunday night, feed it to Dennis Shanahan, his journalist of choice, uh, run the uh, newspaper headline on Monday, and determine the news agenda, therefore, for the week. And that's the way business was done. Uh, we weren't prepared to do it that way, which is one of the reasons uh, that the Murdoch Empire, uh, led by the National Daily the Australian, declared war on us. The vast majority of our listenership is not from Australia. So can you take us through some examples of the kind of attacks that the Murdoch press launched against you when you refused to play by the usual status quo? Well, the, f the formal declaration of war from memory was barely six months into the government and prior to uh, the uh, onset of the global financial crisis. And because we had refused to play ball and just feed one exclusive after story after another to the Murdoch media, uh, what the uh, editor of the National Daily did on the front page of the uh, weekend edition, which is read extensively across the nation, not just in uh, one part of the country, and the front page screaming headline, like one of those war and peace headlines, uh, was um, chaos. And, uh, and it 
it uh, purported to run a news story which said that uh, my government was run internally in a chaotic fashion. Um, and and the real agenda there was that we were not feeding um, Murdoch's newspaper daily exclusives or weekly exclusive stories which would uh, prop up their own sense of their um, uh, newspaper outlets' uh, individual worth. So they attack, they attack viciously and in a sustained fashion, uh, almost in terms of their tactics, mafioso-like. One of the major attacks I still remember very well was a claim made around a trip you made to Afghanistan in 2009 about you yelling at Australian soldiers for not being able to find you a hairdryer on base. I remember it being a very, very big story at the time, but it wasn't until later I learned that they printed a small retraction on page 9 many days later. And that story really did stick around, and it made a very big impact in the subsequent election in 2010. Uh, can you take us through that whole ordeal? This is uh, one of, uh, frankly, a hundred such uh, stories. And the what's the strategy here by Murdoch and the Murdoch editors? With political leaders that they don't like, either for ideological, business or personal reasons, their standard stock in trade is to delegitimize you personally to delegitimize you as an individual. And so they will begin a series of attacks directly on your character and or your wife or husband or your family. And they are ruthless and relentless about how they go about this and the truth doesn't enter into it. So that's the background. And so what happened on this occasion, I was uh, visiting our troops in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, the day afterwards, um, not the day after, it was very soon afterwards, they ran this front page story from memory, I think, on the Sunday papers about uh, how I had um, uh, effectively had a tantrum because no one at the military base had a hairdryer that I could use to make sure my hair looked presentable. Well, this was just an utter, utter fabrication. Uh, from memory, I wasn't even there overnight. Um, let alone was I faintly concerned about what my hair looked like. And um, not only did it just not happen, there were no um, direct witnesses claiming that it happened. This was entirely a fabrication. And then the, so this was plastered all over the newspapers, then bleed, to go back to our earlier point, then bleeds into the electronic news coverage. It's still repeated to this day, by the way, um, you know, more than a decade later. And it is an utter 100% lie. Um, and uh, so what happens, and this is the standard operating procedure for Murdoch, is they will land the lie story, um, let it have its effect over several days, and then eventually, when a retraction comes, it'll be a correction buried up the back of the newspaper once the damage is done. That's how the syndicate operates. And the number of journalists that you talk to quietly from the Murdoch stable who simply say to you sheepishly weeks, months, years later, oh, I'm sorry about that, mate. Um, I wrote the story, but then they rewrote it. They rewrote it. So I know a lot of the time when this conversation comes up, people say things like, well, I know the Murdoch press is slanted, but I get my news from a neutral source, usually a public broadcaster like PBS in the United States, the BBC in the UK, ABC in Australia, or the CBC in Canada. Do you think these public broadcasters can provide an adequate counterweight to the large news conglomerates we see today? 
there are literally dozens of journalists who have said to me in, in the confessional, having done me in over the years, oh, mate, um, uh, we did what we did because we were frightened for our jobs. And for those outside the Murdoch empire saying, oh, look, um, the, the message from on high is we don't touch them because otherwise they go after our management and our proprietors. So to go to the ABC in Australia, um, what it's plain to me is despite the fact that Murdoch owns 70% of the print readership in Australia, despite the fact that um, he has uh, a total monopoly in my own home state of Queensland, our national broadcaster, through its a number one investigative um, news program and reporting program, Four Corners, has never, never in the last 25 years done an investigative report into Murdoch's abuse of his monopoly media powers. And when you ask people why, quietly they will say, it's the message from on high, we don't want trouble from the Murdochs. Being out on the campaign trail and talking with the average voter, you tend to hear things like, I vote with facts and rationality, and the press running hit pieces on one candidate constantly doesn't swing my vote. Uh, do you think that's true to an extent, or it's more like the Mars bar principle, where if you run a Mars bar ad hundreds of times, people tend to eventually buy a Mars bar? The voting public is a, uh, a varied beast. People listening to uh, this um, podcast, for example, um, by definition, will be ra rational human beings who will be interested in uh, what's the proposition, um, how is it um, reasonably constructed, and where is the empirical evidence. Um, it's what we in the old-fashioned social sciences would call proof tests. Um, and we would also believe that a piece of uh, news reporting, for example, should be able to be factually attested. But what's happened uh, over time, and you see this at its most acute and advanced and um, metastasized uh, form in the United States with Fox News, is not just the blending of news reporting with editorial reporting, but frankly, the complete abandonment of the whole notion of independent fact-checking of, of an individual assertion just gone out the window. So therefore, what I'm saying is, yes, rational human beings will reach their own judgments uh, based on... Um, you know, a um, reasoned access to data um, and their own set of um, defined values in the interpretation of that data. That's fine. But a huge slice of the voting public neither have the time or are necessarily interested in that. And so what happens is that the entire political operation of Murdoch Syndicate uh, is directed at how do you manipulate the rest of the voting public in huge numbers who are not rationally engaged, but are often just emotionally engaged, by which I mean um, that the Murdoch media are past masters at the manipulation of the neuroscience, of uh, political neuroscience uh, of, um, of the electoral process, by which I mean they are past masters at manipulating the emotions of anxiety, fear, anger, and rage. And if you do all that, and do it effectively, guess what? Um, you simply cater that by a series of articles and newspaper coverage and broader media coverage, which makes you anxious about things like how much debt is there, how much deficit is there? Um, and on top of that, who are these foreigners threatening our cultural identity, etc.? One of the major takeaways from the British News of the World scandal was finding out just how much access Murdoch had 
to the Prime Minister and other senior members of his cabinet. As a private businessman, it seemed he had the ability to get any of the leaders on the phone whenever he wanted, and could lobby them privately for any of his requests. Do you think he still has that level of access to senior officials like Boris Johnson or Donald Trump or even Scott Morrison of Australia? Absolutely. And to be frank, when I was Prime Minister, rarely, but if uh, Murdoch wanted to talk to me, um, you know, as a, as a rational political leader, uh, dealing with the person who owns 70% of the print media, I'm not going to, uh, as it were, refuse to speak to the person. Um, mind you, I never received such calls from the uh, chairman of the ABC or from the chief executive officer of the ABC. I don't ever re recall reflecting a view to the ABC about their coverage. That's the Australian Broadcasting Commission, our equivalent of, uh, as you know, PBS, PBS in the United States and uh, the BBC in the UK. Um, but um, I am 110% confident that if Murdoch not only wanted to talk to Morrison, that he could get through, um, but if he then got on the phone and said, this is what I want, um, Scotty, uh, then, um, uh, and this is how far I want you to jump, then Morrison would be jumping through hoops. If you want a recent case study of this, uh, there was a, uh, there's a famous um, um, uh, story, remarkably unreported in the Murdoch media, of a uh, contribution of some $17.5 million uh, to Fox uh, in Australia to continue to sustain their um, sports coverage during the COVID crisis. No tender, no nothing. Just a $17.5 million gift from the taxpayer to Rupert. Well, thank you very much. That's, that's just terrific. In any normal country, this would be a scandal uh, by uh, a, a, um, a multiplier of 10, but not here. And if you look for extensive coverage in the rest of the Australian media, not a lot. I'd be amiss not to ask with your expertise on China, so do you think China does similar things to Murdoch to attempt to shift the domestic narrative in Western nations as well? I don't think that's the case. Uh, I don't think you can apply, uh, for example, China's uh, repressive uh, regimes both in Tibet and Xinjiang uh, and prospect prospectively in Hong Kong um, to how they seek to manage foreign barbarians. Uh, namely ourselves. But where I think there is some truth is this. Often, um, the, uh, the Chinese approach to handling uh, foreigners is to go to less powerful Western countries first, whether it's Norway, Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, more recently Canada and Australia, to push as hard as they can in order to bring about the results that they want. And then if uh, they hit upon a formula which works and that um, democracies give way in concession ABC or X, Y, and Z, uh, then it is applied more broadly. But the great um, tampering factor in what I've just said is the Chinese system, uh, ultimately a Marxist-Leninist system, one thing about Leninists is they understand power. And China is still to this day respectful of the raw elements of American power, the US dollar, the power of the US military, and the power of US technology, including semiconductors. So I think it's a more complex equation than what you just uh, reflected in your question. 
every single nation on earth has a particular set of overarching strategic goals. Something that is overarching to all of your foreign policy decisions. For Australia, these are things like make sure the trade routes are secure and open. For Canada's strategic goals, it's imperative to have a cooperative relationship with Washington. But for Russia, it's making sure your adversaries are divided and focused inwards, whilst you can try to work around the periphery. It's no secret that a strong European Union is bad for Moscow, for pretty obvious reasons. Moscow would have much more leverage in negotiations between Russia and Slovakia than it would in the case of Russia and the entire EU. A divided Europe helps Russia. So when a vote like Brexit came up, it seemed like a golden opportunity. Because win, lose or draw, Europe, and particularly the United Kingdom, would become more divided. So if a foreign country's election could strongly benefit you with one of the candidates, it may be in your national interest to try and put your thumb on the scale. Or so that's how they would justify it. So today we talk about how foreign nations sometimes meddle in the elections of other countries to achieve their own domestic goals. And to talk more about that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. All the Kremlin's Men So I was actually just watching in preparation for this a really, really interesting video. It was done by the Heritage Foundation in 2014. April 2014, the very start of the war in, in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass, just after Russia had seized the Crimean Peninsula, demonstrating the different ways that Russians had been able to use social media campaigns, even among an audience that wasn't very well connected, to target potential pro-Russian, at first it was pro-Russian voters, but then it became pro-Russian, you know, pro-Russian separatists. And that could, that could be used very, very easily through things like VK, the Russian social network. Nick Much is a London-based, nationally published journalist focusing on foreign policy issues. He's written for publications including The Telegraph, The Sunday Times, Der Spiegel and The Daily Beast. He had an inside view of many of the campaigns for Brexit and was heavily involved in the investigations into foreign interference in UK politics. He tells his story exclusively for the first time on the red line today. I was actually on the ground in Ukraine earlier and one thing I found that was very, very interesting is I found a huge willingness to accept some quite odd conspiracy theories such as those about 5g being caused by coronavirus and it, it wasn't just this wasn't just you know this was the kind of people you know young well-educated college men and women in ukraine that were telling me this that i was not hearing anywhere else now another place where it became unfortunately very very popular was in myanmar in myanmar part of the, not just governments and, you know, pro-government ethnic groups used Facebook particularly to spread, you know, very dehumanizing messages about the Rohingya Muslim minority and, you know, use that to basically, you would see people commenting saying that they were ants and they should be exterminated and that this was one of the ways that people think there was a great movement to be able to get local popular opinion behind the the 
the destruction of Myanmar homes and the ethnic cleansing of them from their lands and everything like that. There are, I'm sure, numerous more examples. You know, there's always a big social media campaign uh, going on in Brazil between between Bolsonaro's adherents and, and, and supporters of the opposition in Venezuela as well. The, these kind of things are all over the world. Disinformation has become one of the new weapons nations wield against each other, starting a brand new type of arms race. But which nations are winning that arms race in this new field of information warfare? It sounds like an easy question, but when you pass things down, you actually can often notice that's a very, very interesting thing, that that's quite a hard question to get at its core of. Because first we need to step back a little bit and say, well, what is, what is disinformation? Now, I want to take Russia Today, or RT, Once Russia Today, the well-known Russian state, state television uh, actor, which is very, very, very good at this. There's a reason the Russians are very good at this that I'll get into later. And what they are extremely good at doing is, is someone from this Heritage Foundation to what made a very, very good point. Most disinformation is true. Now, that sounds like a, like a contradiction in terms, but what he's saying is that if something is just flat out, completely false and no evidence for it, it's often quite easy to dismiss. But if something is right in large parts or conforms to someone's uh, closely realised personal experience, then what that does is it makes it very, very hard to... To, to, to combat it because people can see that something is true there, then you add some, you either take some misleading context or you splice someone talking together. And what you come up, what you're left with is something that's just not very, very, and what you know, is something that's much harder to just dismiss out of hand. So I'll, I'll give you an example, for instance. I was at a, I was at a conference organized by uh, an institution called the Institute of Statecraft. And I was in Lithuania. And we were talking about the ways in which Russian propaganda, of how to con combat Russian propaganda, and the issue of uh, how Russians try to exploit ethnic tensions in certain groups came up. And someone used the example of the Catalonian independence movement and how uh, the Russians and RT portrayed the, 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 the Spanish state as a fascist state, saying that they were treading on, you know, local populations' demands for autonomy. Now, I was in Catalonia, I covered the independence referendum, and there are parts of that narrative events that are actually true. You have the Spanish police, you know, shooting students and protesters and old ladies with rubber bullets in the street. I myself got roughed up by a by a Spanish police officer. Now, that doesn't mean that you can therefore say, oh, the Spanish police state is a fascist police state. But if you're halfway there and you're targeting an extremely passionate pro-independent supporter or you're targeting a pro-Ukrainian or a pro-Russian a separatist in Donetsk or anything like that, for instance, they were targeted with the idea that the fact that um, the Ukrainians were going to ban the use of the Russian language and that there was going to be an ethnic genocide 
in, in the eastern Ukraine. But what they based that on was, one, the fact that the Ukrainian parliament rather sillily decided to temporarily pass a law saying it would ban education in Russian. And you also did have a genuine example of a fire being started at, a, I think it was a theatre in Odessa, uh, where a, num- a good number of Russian speakers or ethnic Russians, if you want to kill them, were killed. And this was massively, massively, massively amplified by Russian propaganda. So what the Russians are particularly good at doing is they're particularly good at taking a genuinely real incident and massively dragging that out to mean, oh, my God, this means that, you know, that that the world's going to win and use that to target groups uh, for influence and activism. Now, in both those cases, the Russians are acting entirely in the Russian self-interest, which is to, you know, is to weaken states in the European Union because the European Union as a unified force is bad for them, and also to promote pro-Russian ethnic sentiment uh, among ex-Soviet Union countries. So we have an idea of how states can meddle in elections. But we also have to talk about how private companies can be hired to shift the results. You did some work on the Cambridge Analytica story, how a private company was hired to fix elections in places like Guyana, Romania, Ghana, and even through to the US 2016 election. So how does a company like Cambridge Analytica influence democracies? So let's take Cambridge Analytica. There's an absolutely fantastic short film by Channel 4. It just came out about two or three weeks ago. And what it shows is it's a great example of a machine that was built by Cambridge Analytica in order to suppress the black vote in the United States. Very interesting what they did here. They went, they took as many data sets as they could, from Facebook, a lot of it from Facebook. And what they would do is they would divide people up into different categories, you know, core vote, how to get out the vote. But then they found a category called deterrence. Now, deterrence was targeted specifically at people who were naturally minded to vote for the Clinton campaign. This is working for the Trump campaign, by the way, the official Trump campaign. This system set up by Cambridge Analytica, in, in part by Cambridge Analytica, along with a few other firms, identified voters that were supposed to vote for the other side, the Hillary Clinton campaign, they were working on behalf of the Trump campaign, but who were what they called deterrence voters, who who they could be deterred from voting if they were shown or subjected to particular messages. And this could be, for instance, suburban women who disliked Hillary Clinton but didn't like Trump's views on women, or it could be, and this is the one that they explore in great detail, is a lot of low socioeconomic basis black voters. And they did a very interesting technique which is convince them American democracy is sick and broken and there is no point in voting. Hillary Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton pushed through a crime bill in 1994 that increased mass incarceration. Hillary Clinton called some black youth super predators. And what they did then is what that is supposed to do is a a young black voter sees this and they think, well, I, I never vote for Donald Trump in a million years, but Hillary Clinton might be just as bad for my community I can't be bothered to go and vote this election. I'm going to sit it out, whether whether out of protest, because not voting is still a very valid uh, um, 
is still a very valid strategy in my opinion, but also in terms of, you know, it might just take away their enthusiasm. And if you're not enthusiastic and emotionally engaged, you're much less likely to vote. There, this is, is this is what I mean when I'm saying a lot of disinformation is true, is because they are able to take that kernel of truth and then build a much grander narrative about it, which uh, around it, which omits all of the relevant context. The election Cambridge Analytica is most famous for, the one that really brought this sort of electioneering to the forefront, was the UK Brexit referendum. What sort of tactics were used for that? referendum. But one of the reasons you would have invited me on this show is I do have some personal experience of how this all went. So, and this is a exclusive to you, Michael, I have never spoken publicly about my role in uh, in Brexit and the investigations around Brexit before. I'm doing so for the first time here. I worked briefly on a book for a man named Aaron Banks. Now, for your readers who might not know might not know who he is, he's never been an elected official, but he is potentially one of the most politically influential figures in recent British history. He set up a campaign called Leave.eu, and it bankrolled a much more prominent political figure, Nigel Farage, to the exact numbers are disputed, but people think around £8 million, which is around 10 to £12 million American dollars. And one thing, and I actually helped to write a book, a book that was an account of his campaign. Anyway, that all went fine. We, know, we knew that he had spoken to the Russian ambassador at one point. But then we get to a year later, and all of a sudden, uh, my employer at the time gets tip-off from a couple of well-placed sources that there were serious questions to be asked about the nature of Aaron Banks's potential funding. There were some reports that suggested that he had had significant meetings with Russian diplomats that were undeclared, or rumours going round. Rather, and there were also questions that were asked about his relation, uh, about his business interests. There were allegations that his businesses were not doing that well financially, and it would have been difficult for him to personally cough up the $10 million that he eventually did. Now, I need to preface this by saying there have been an awful lot of journalists as well as the Electoral Commission and the National Crime Agency that have looked at this and that no one has ever been able to find evidence stating that he engaged in any electoral wrongdoing. In fact, the National Crime Agency said, we're going to take no further action than this. We're satisfied that the money came from a permissible source of donation. Now, what my experience was is that my boss at the time asked, but can we check our records and can we see if there is, you know, any evidence of something that, that, that could raise red flags? And I consulted our records and it turned out that Aaron Banks had had a large many undisclosed meetings with Russian officials based in London. That included the Russian ambassador, that included a Russian diplomat who was later expelled for being a spy, as well as the head of the Russian um, 
political service at the Russian embassy, a man that they describe in the book as the KGB's man in London, obviously meaning a Russian intelligence, uh, someone they suspected to be a Russian intelligence agent. And that not only that, but that this man had, uh, Alexander Yakovenko, the Russian ambassador, had introduced him to a large number of very lucrative opportunities in the diamond and gold mining business, in businesses in Russia, businesses in which he had, as he has, it's been well known, he's a perfect, been a perfectly legitimate investor in commodities in other parts of the world, such as South Africa or Lesotho for a long time. So there's nothing untoward in those, in those industries specifically. So anyway, I I take this information to uh, my boss, and we have a discussion about when the best way to publish it would be. I will just say now that the decision that the thoughts that we had on whether to publish it or whether to give it to the authorities didn't always see eye to eye. And in the end, the material ended up going to the uh, British intelligence services, and it also ended up going to various newspapers, including the Guardian and the Sunday Times. And the whole story, you know, a huge, caused a huge stir in the UK at the time. It had, you know, I think the front six... I actually spoke to Aaron himself recently about this, and he said that he got a call from an editor at the Sunday Times who said, Aaron, we have never in the history of the Sunday Times had the the front seven pages of the paper, or six pages, or however many it was, devoted to one single story. So in a weird way, congratulations. Um, And it wasn't just these meetings. It it turned out he'd had uh, another, another series of meetings that coincided with his trip to the Trump campaign in, in, um, his visits to the Trump campaign where he met Donald Trump and where Nigel Farage gave a big speech at a, at a Trump rally. And now, again, it needs to be said, none of, nothing, none of this is illegal. However, one of the ways that Russians try and gain influence in the political life of various countries is they try and schmooze well-connected business people, particularly in dissident environments. There was a BuzzFeed report, and what this BuzzFeed report said um, was that you know, Italian far-right politicians had been offered lucrative business deals by the Kremlin, and that it seems that in this case they may have been accepted. And even if, now I have to say there's no evidence uh, that Aaron Banks himself ever, uh, ever took up any of these deals, although one of his, uh, the company of one of his associates, Jim Mellon, did take up one of these deals, and I believe there are unanswered questions around, around that particular aspect of the relationship. But also is that what you have here is the Russians cultivating access to a figure who is very well politically connected in the UK and then could be, has the potential to become a conduit, another conduit to um, the United States or powerful politicians in the United States. Now, what Aaron Banks also did was he frequently spread uh, pro-Russian political information online. He wrote an article about supporting the Russians in Ukraine. There was one particular moment where there was a 
a fight, a, a spat, a diplomatic spat between the Russian ambassador to the UK and the um, and, and the UK government over Putin's actions, I think, in Syria. And he actually came out and publicly supported the Russian side and actually said, I suggest to one of his colleagues, I suggest we send the ambassador a notice of support. He had uh, ideas of setting up a political party in, in the UK. It, it never came about, but that political party's platform was going to be on improving uh, relations with Russian and British governments. And so it's, I think, reasonably clear that the Kremlin's efforts to, you know, cultivate him not in any illegal sense, but as a friendly politician of, of influence were reasonably successful. Now, there's also significant evidence to suggest that the Russians funded, uh, you know, far-right parties in France. And, you know, that um, I, I, this isn't my specialty, but I'm quite sure they would fund radical left-wing parties as well as one of their actions, one of their objectives is to make sure that the EU is as divided as possible. Now, Brexit is a huge diplomatic win for them. Now, I should go back and say that, as, as you were saying earlier, it, it, it becomes a question of, well, you know, what's, what's right and what's wrong? And one thing that Putin has come out and said is that, well, you know, Americans you know, have meddled in elections all over the world. And there's a reasonable bit of truth to that as well. You go back to 1996, uh, just after the fall of the Soviet Union, and there was an, uh, the Russian economy had collapsed it was at the end of the Soviet Union, while it was a great moment of freedom for many people. It was terrible for the Russian people themselves in terms of their living standards. And in 1996, a communist, uh, the leader of the Russian Communist Party was actually ma making very strong gains in the polls by promising to bring the old system back. Um, I can't quite remember his name, Gennady someone. And he was going to probably, he may well have been going to win. And the Americans actually sent Boris Yeltsin advisors on how to win the election, you know, gave him media training. He did end up winning the election. And I think it was Time magazine that did, even did a cover story, you know, our men in Russia, you know, how we helped win the Russian election and save, you know, the world from, from, from going back to communism. So, you know, where do you, where do you draw the line on things? None of that was ever mentioned in the official Brexit investigation. Why do you think they left it out and never properly looked into this one? There is an interesting question as to why no one found evidence of wrongdoing, not just with, with Nigel Farage or anyone, but with the Leave campaigns in general and the potential of particularly the Russians' other method, which we were already talking about, which is social media disinformation. Now, one of one of my um, one of my motivations actually for coming and speaking a little bit more freely about this than I have done in the past is that there was a very very interesting report in the um, by the UK Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee about the dangers of Russian influence into the Brexit election, and they said something that would for many people was absolutely unbelievable. They asked MI5 and MI6, you know, did you, you know, 
have evidence of, of Russian involvement in the Brexit referendum? They said no. The next question was, did you investigate Russian interference in the Brexit referendum? And they said no. So the Intelligence and Security Committees did not investigate potential interference in the most significant election in British history since the end of the Second World War. I mean, this seems like kind of a big deal. Why would they not investigate this? So I heard two. I heard two reasons that have been that have been um, mooted around on this. Let's go back a little bit to 2014 and one of the lessons that the Russians learned in Ukraine. What they learned was that it was that it is because they were engaged in a social media disinformation operation, and they were engaged also in a covert um, military operation. Now, the disinformation operation caused almost no, not no, it's wrong to say it was a completely spontaneous local uprising. But it sure gave them a hell of a lot of support. Then when they tried to hang on to those areas militarily, it was much, much more difficult to do. Um, the, the pro-Russian side, you know, it, 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 even you, you, you will even occasionally find senior Russians who will admit to you that they think, you know, Donbass is just, is just you know, a, a stone in their shoe and that they wish they didn't have to deal with it. And one thing they learned is that the right disinformation operation at the right, at the perfect time in a country when there's already political and social tensions and inequalities in a country can be much more cost effective than a military Operation and what that, but no one re- they were the first to realize that. So, come to 2015, come to 2016, and to be honest, the security services, you know, particularly bad in the UK, but the, 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 the US security services were caught wrong footed as well, just weren't looking for, you know, disinformation and for social media campaigns. And that's they hadn't realized the the effectiveness of it as a political weapon. And so, one, they weren't looking for it at the time. It's embarrassing to go back and admit, guys, we got it wrong. We should have done more on this. The other reason, and that this was a report that came out in the Daily Mail, which was never confirmed or denied as far as I know. So, you know, a lot of people think the Daily Mail is a right-wing rag, but they have good connections in, in the right places, and they can sometimes get things right. What it said was that... They have that they that the security services came to Theresa May, then the Home Secretary, and asked to do an investigation into this issue. Specifically, they wanted to do an investigation into Aaron Banks and his old um, funding campaigns, and that Theresa May overruled them from doing so. They haven't gotten the necessary permission from the British government. One, it could be that people in the British government are, are sympathetic to Brexit. The second reason could also be that they thought they come out and admit that the Brexit vote could have been tainted by Russian meddling. That it's almost just too much of a political issue to deal with. Like it's just it, it would com- potentially completely change the ability of people to accept the referendum result and move on. And I mean, I, I've, I've been open that I, I voted for Brexit myself. I'm not sure I necessarily had the same commitment to it as I once did. But 
there were many, many, many valid reasons that people voted for Brexit. And the potential of Russian collusion wouldn't necessarily make the vote illegitimate, but it would raise serious questions about whether it was. And that was just a can of worms I don't think anyone really wanted to answer. We went through some aspects of this in our Guyana piece, with one of the guests for that piece being senior Cambridge Analytica whistleblower Brittany Kaiser, who was in the leadership of Cambridge Analytica whilst all this was going on. One of the big things I took away from that interview was her answer to one of my questions. I asked Brittany, so now that Cambridge Analytica is broken up, where have all the senior staff moved to? Where do they work now? To which her response was that 90% of them all work for the Trump 2020 re-election campaign. And that brings us to today. Do you think the US may be up for the same sorts of problems Brexit faced when it comes to the upcoming 2020 election? That's a question of... I can't see why they wouldn't use these sort of techniques in, a, in another election. There's no reason why you wouldn't, if you were a politician, or to be honest, more on the more on the Trump side, but on any side of the divide, using these sort of sort of tactics is part of the political landscape in pretty much every country around the world going forward. But again, we want to go back to the fact that there has been election interference for many, many years. Go back and look at all of the, you know, the American-backed or Russian-backed political parties that, that, that thrived in the Cold War. Go back and look, as I said, in the Russian elections in, in 1990. And that this political interference is not new. It's just the rules have changed. And countries or individuals or groups are better or worse at, ex at exploiting the new realm of social media uh, than others, and that we're just going to have to see what happens going forward. So we understand how the press and governments can be manipulated, but what about the average person? How can the average voter be swung to vote for a certain cause? Well, with things moving increasingly online, public groundswell has never been easier. Petitions, Facebook pages, retweets can all show very quickly how much the public supports something without having to go door to door with a clipboard in hand like in the past. But at the same time, with little to no verification methods in place, fake profiles, bots and sock accounts can increasingly be a part of the conversation. Online, it's fairly easy to drown out a hundred real people with a thousand fake accounts. And these accounts can be easily bought and sold, if you have the money. So who is doing this at the moment? How did we get here? And how can you spot the differences between a real person in Kansas City, Missouri, and a paid troll in St. Petersburg? Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. $400 the gap between Russia and everybody else is enormous. Um, Russia is an old hand. And what I would point to is that um, for a long time, the West had a really uh, significant technological and infrastructure gap on the Soviet Union and then later Russia uh, for communications. So we had you know, computing power, a better tele, uh, you know, tele, uh, telecommunications infrastructure. And so for a long time, Russia really had to depend on theory building, where they could really compete was coming up with a robust information uh, and robust sort of active measures, uh, theory and program. Now, uh, it's pretty cheap and easy to get on the internet and do stuff. So the technological gap has closed, but Russia is light years ahead of everybody else when it comes to sort of 
they don't use the word information warfare, but kind of like that. Using information as a tool of, as a tool of state power, if that makes sense. Bill Marcello is a senior behavioral social scientist for the RAND Corporation, as well as a professor and trained sociolinguist at the Pardee School. Bill has written numerous reports on psyops and information warfare, and has even developed an analytic toolset to help identify trolls and foreign actors online. He is one of the best in the field when it comes to this subject, and he joins us today. Being in this space and competing can be really cheap. Uh, there's a recent case where an IRA worker, an internet research agency worker, uh, tried to sue for back wages. You're doing this kind of like uh, uh, malign stuff. And I think their salary they were contesting was like $400 a month. So that gives you an idea, like a professional working, you know, uh, regular shifts for the Kremlin to try and do information uh, operations, malign ones, is getting paid 400 bucks a month. So that gives you a sense of how you know cheap it is to get involved in this space. Uh, what, what I think, though, is that we can say the U.S. definitely has uh, technological advantages. We've got really good cyber people, uh, I think, among the best in the world working on this problem. What I think uh, we're struggling to work with, but it's happening, is we're trying to work on what is our theory? How do we put our technical ability into practice and how do we coordinate and synchronize so that we're not working at cross-purposes, cross so that we're sharing information. Uh, and that's that's what I think we're at right now, is we're trying to get better at competing as we sort of build up our capacity for applying our, our technical knowledge and ability. So for people who may not be aware, can you take us through what the IRA, or Internet Research Agency, based in St. Petersburg, actually is? Are they a private company, or do they take their orders from the Kremlin? Yeah, so and I, I'm not deeply expert in the legal, you know, issues here, but in essence, they are an organ of state power. So they are nominally independent, but they take their marching orders directly from the Kremlin. And the work they does is directly aimed towards supporting uh, Russian foreign policy and uh, Russian strategic, strategic and operational goals. In the last few elections, we saw memes or captioned images weaponized by the IRA to support Kremlin-favored candidates around the world. Can you take us through how a meme could possibly change someone's vote? Sure. And I so there, and there's there's two sort of two things, I think two lines of effort. One is this sort of sharing memes, uh, sort of like captioned images that encapsulate a really particular kind of partisan stance and perspective and really speak to uh, very partisan uh, ideas um, and like very like a partisan identity. I'm a progressive and I care about these things and I really don't like people who are conservative or I'm a conservative and I'm a true patriot and believer. I, I despise those those liberals and other negative words they would use. And so one of them is circulating those kinds of memes, caption pictures that uh, speak to those on Facebook. And another one is a more public thing where you're sharing um, persona troll personas and you're pretending to be an American progressive or pretending to be uh, an American um, a conservative. And the way they work is uh, Russia has this um, a theory um, about sort of reflexive control theory would be the translation. But in essence, uh, Russia has believed for a long time that human beings approach the world in a very binary uh, sense. You're either this or a that. You're either uh, you're either left wing or you're right wing. You know, you're committed this, you're committed that, and so they believe they can help um, paralyze other nations, undermine uh, shared confidence in the state, and sort of 
civil, the civil compact by activating and really ramping up those tensions. So the idea is we already have people in the U.S. who identify very strongly as conservative, identify very strongly as progressive. Uh, they're very committed to those to those perspectives. Uh, Russia's idea is that by putting out content that really speaks to the most extreme partisan positions, they can help nudge people farther left and farther right into sort of more ideologically pure echo chambers and get people really, really ramped up and moving from, I don't agree with you, to not only do I not agree with you, you are the enemy. And then they hope from there to sort of paralyze uh, the ability of other countries, of democratic countries, to find consensus. And that leaves the wider space open for, uh, for Russia to go ahead and act on their interests. And so one thing I really want to stress is, is that for these sort of lines of effort, there may be specific, you know, a candidate here, an issue here where they want to move the needle on something specific. But the really the big focus is just generating distrust. They want an American who lives in the, the Midwest where we have a, a more of a, a more conservative, generally speaking, um, uh, populace to really believe that cities in the U.S. on the coast are filled full of liberal elites and, and also like violent left wing thugs and that they're in danger from this uh, from these, this other kind of people. And they want, you know, American progressives, you know, who may live in cities and, you know, demographically skew younger and uh, have a higher education to believe that the American heartland is full of racist, hateful morons and to really hate uh, their neighbor, uh, their, their, you know, the, their brother-in-law, you know, the person down the street who's a Trump sign and to really activate and sort of exacerbate those existing tensions. And Russians call those people who are already sort of willing to buy into the kind of stuff, they call them useful idiots, people who are sort of predisposed to buy into this stuff, if that makes sense. This is particularly prevalent in the upcoming US election, with both sides being highly partisan. But with the partisanship, it seems that other issues like foreign policy have gone right out the window. Syria, Russia, Ukraine, North Korea, Libya, none of these even get a mention in the top issues of voters this year. Do you think that stoking these tensions online is distracting Washington and the voting base away from these issues, creating power vacuums that could be filled by Moscow or Beijing overseas? The idea is, is that if the US, if, if the UK, if sort of other, you know, peer competitor powers from the, the West, these sort of liberal democracies that have been part of the you know, like NATO countries uh, specifically, if these countries are paralyzed internally, for example, fighting over the issue of, you know, refugees and immigrants or fighting over their, their sort of political disagreements, that leaves a lot of space, for example, for Russia to do all its work creating, you know, a buffer zone around themselves. Uh, and, and, you know, again, like Russia's got a lot of commitments and beliefs about like, you know, their own uh, territorial sovereignty. They want to have lots of space. They don't want to have like NATO encroaching, you know, near them. They want to have like a kind of a, a buffer space of nations they can control or, or sort of have a, a strong influence in. So I, I really think it's more about this latter case of if you guys are too, too busy fighting inside yourselves, I have all the space I need to achieve what I want. And is Russia just targeting big nations like the United Kingdom and the United States, or will they also go after smaller nations like Ukraine and Georgia? So uh, they definitely are targeting um, more local populaces. So we actually have a report on this on Russian social media um, uh, in the near abroad. And 
just as that they're just as they're doing work, say uh, against the U.S. or against the U.K., they're also trying to do work to influence audiences, and they're doing this in Russian. They're doing it somewhat. On, we, so we have found evidence of them doing this on Twitter. In prior reports, we've detected similar efforts over Twitter, but really, they're using uh, platforms like VK that are Russian language and trying to make sure that Russian-speaking populaces, for example, in Crimea, really see the world as, hey, uh, I was a Russian speaker and culturally sort of Russian in Ukraine, uh, and thank goodness Russia, you know, intervened to save us as opposed to annexing them. PSYOPs have been around for a very long time, but I don't think they've ever made this sort of impact like we're seeing now. Why are we more susceptible to foreign PSYOPs now than, let's say, 30 years ago? We're talking right now about a series of reports that came out of a larger effort that was sponsored by uh, the state of California's uh, Office of Election, uh, Office of Emergency Services. So California, large state, they were asking us, hey, how do we make sure California voters you know, can have election security? We don't have to worry about that our votes are being interfered with. That inspired all this research. And for a lot of reasons, mostly because we did not believe that efforts would be directed at the state level. We ended up shifting focus on their on their behalf to the national level, and so that report is the third in that series. Uh, one of my colleagues, Todd Helmus, uh, who's a, a psychologist, an experimental psychologist, who did who did that work and uh, led that work. And I think the big takeaway there is that um, our partisan leanings are, which is a kind of a cognitive bias, right? Which you mentioned is being conservative or being progressive, having those value commitments, that's not a bias. That's values. You're allowed to have those and those are those are fine. The the willingness to want to hear only people who agree with you and the desires to dismiss people that don't agree with you, that's uh that is a bias. And uh that report and some other research we've done really points to the fact that the more partisan you are, the more you're willing to be biased. And a big takeaway is everyone is willing to believe that the other guys are vulnerable to manipulation and propaganda. Like you're, 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 you know that if you're a conservative, you know that liberals can be, you know, manipulated. And if you're a progressive, you know that conservatives are being manipulated. And you don't want to look at yourself as being vulnerable. So one big takeaway is that, yeah, look, we're, we're all vulnerable. And probably the more partisan we are, the more we should probably stop and ask ourselves, hey, am I sort of reacting to things because they tell me what I want to hear? Because they meet my prior cognitive biases. And that's part of what we found in that uh, in that effort. So how does Russia come up with their memes and content? And do they just throw a thousand talking points out there and see what sticks to the wall? Or do they drum up certain key issues they know that will stoke fires? They have been working on active measures since at least the 1940s. And I mean, this is like really serious stuff. Like, like they have created fake American small towns for example, with like people in it acting like Americans and speaking English, sort of train up people. They study our culture and our language. And so uh, what I can tell you is they have invested for decades in getting deep, deep cultural and linguistic understanding of the U.S. and, and other nations, like definitely the U.K., to understand them and to be able to, to take active measures within this reflexive control theory uh, framework to try and change our minds, to try and influence us. They've been doing it for a long, long time. So for example, um, spreading the idea uh, that um, 
I'll give you a great example. Spreading the idea that um, the CIA introduced crack cocaine into poor, predominantly black neighborhoods in the U.S., um, that is a Russian-originated conspiracy theory. It is one that still lives today. There's no doubt whatsoever that this is a Russian-inspired conspiracy theory and that they were the original actors that did this. Incredibly resonant, though, with America, with some Americans, and so resonant that right now there are intelligent, educated people who believe firmly that the CIA planned and, and actually brought in crack cocaine and seeded that into these urban areas in order to harm uh, African-American communities. So that's an example of how good they are. Um, I will tell you, like, for example, on our, our troll research, uh, I, I can see evidence of how good they are at this. So, for example, when we use machine learning to examine lots and lots of these troll accounts and their output, and we use um, sort of interpretable algorithms that kind of tell us what were the important features. So the trolls we come across online, particularly on Twitter and Facebook, are they actual Russians sitting behind a computer in St. Petersburg, or are they mostly bots? So that's a really good question, and uh, I'll give you my best answer is when we when we look at the accounts that an algorithm in this case, so we, we have a, we basically trained an algorithm to on known trolls. So after 2016, we we have this you know decent sized database of uh, of identified for real Russian trolls, people in you know in, in St. Petersburg doing bad stuff, and so we train the algorithm to uh, the, the model to find. You know, what are the key moves that both these left-wing and right-wing uh, trolls do? What we found in practice is the algorithm works pretty well, but there are false positives. So um, sometimes you're going to find, uh, and, and the one we've used recently doesn't say yes or no. It gives a sort of a rating, you know, like 92% pretty trollish down to like 73, kind of trollish. And the lower you go, the less trollish it is. So in human inspection of those sort of highly identified counts, what we found is sometimes uh, it really looks like a real person. Like if you look at the whole accounts output, yes, all of this like, you know, MAGA, QAnon, but also like sometimes like talking about like what your kid did and arguing about sports stuff or using uh, idiosyncratic, culturally appropriate language and humor, like making jokes like to be a real person and an actual American to make. Same for the progressive ones. But the majority actually are, you know, appear to be like, you know, they're trolls. They're really laser focused on this stuff. They're tweeting at an inhuman rate. Um, they are fitting the profile perfectly. Within that, some of them appear to be, my guess is they're bots. Their work is so procedural. It's almost all retweeting. It's almost no original content. And there's nothing that looks really very human if you look at the whole account output. But some of them look to be, like you'd said, uh, sock accounts, right? Where there's like a like there's like a, a herder behind them, maybe operating, you know, 10, 20 accounts. Because while they are very clearly trollish and don't look to be uh, authentic Americans, uh, there is enough um, humorous work, enough sort of like um, like you know like nasty comments, but that are variable enough that it really looks like someone who's like a decent, they're decent at speaking uh, American English is doing some uh, some human work. So basically we think it's a, it's a mix uh, of both bots and human operated uh, sock accounts. And do they get to decide what issues they're gonna be really burying down on or is that kind of handed down to them by the Kremlin? In terms of what they're actually doing, 
uh, it seems to be more of boosting, selectively boosting what is out there. They have consistent themes that they want to boost. Uh, they are doing it mostly by harvesting and retweeting other stuff, although they're occasionally putting in their own sort of original content and commentary. Um, but we have found in some prior work, there have been examples in other, other um, in, uh, you know, uh, research uh, places, some, some commercial places have found what look to be like test cases, like, hey, we're going to make up a fake news story, say, about a, uh, an accident in Georgia. We'll put that out there. We'll boost it with a network and see how much how well it works. And by the way, it has worked pretty well in these right wing accounts that are that are clearly that hit our troll model and look pretty trollish when you look at them in, uh, uh, by hand. They would often recycle Black Lives Matters kind of content, like, "Hey, here's Black Lives Matters rioting." So this narrative uh, that Black Lives Matter and Antifa are rioters, thugs and that they're violent and they'll cycle all these stories. It could be news stories, legitimate news stories. It could be like more like sort of local reporting that shows either Black Lives Matters or progressive Antifa, anti-fascist people breaking store windows, toppling statues, holding up, you know, protesting in violent ways and saying, hey, here's these thugs. A separate line kind of under that, and this is a really ugly one, is they will find non-political videos that show um, black Americans behaving poorly. So they'll show like two black Americans getting in a, f in a fight and like a really ugly, violent thing. And they will show over and over again, uh, basically uh, black people acting poorly. Um, and the, the clear intent is to link those two together and to say, hey, this racist message, we can't let these dark skinned people take over America. So I think, they're sort of harvesting the real world in selective ways to create um, a discursive experience that is not true, right? If you selectively pick out parts of the world that show other people, you can construct uh, a picture, a, dis a discursive picture, a discourse picture of the world that is not accurate and really helps you believe that like, you know, my neighbor is a danger uh, and it doesn't really match up if you're actually out in the real world, if that makes sense. So this is an issue we're going to have to deal with for a long time to come. What I want to know, though, is there something we can do to combat it and protect ourselves against this sort of psyop? I don't see any way to get around the fact that we will have to deal with this kind of threat going forward. And by the way, like, you know, Russia is threatening to leave the Internet and create their own sort of domestic Internet. That's something they're, try they're trying to do right now. Um, they want to try and control their information space. So... I don't think we want to try and copy them. I don't. I think that I think that solution is worse than the problem to try and like clamp down on information. And again, in the U.S. and in many you know uh, Western countries, there are strong cultural and legal protections against the kind of thing. So I think we have to face the fact that uh, information operations, information efforts, including really malign ones, are part of our new normal. So then I think the question is how we respond to it. But there's more than just technical, technical solutions, right? The platforms themselves, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Google, they have to figure out how they're going to make money and be part of, uh, you know, the, the world's, you know, culture, social, political interactions and not be platforms for harm. And that's being figured out. The U.S. has to figure out and, you know, other nations, Australia has to figure out, like, what's our public policy? What's our culture? What are our norms? You know, do we all kind of realize, hey, I should probably think before I hit like, share and send. So I, I think 
solutions are going to have to be more holistic than just technical ones. Um, although that's the one I'm most, most interested in, but yeah, it's part of the new, it's part of our new normal and we have to figure it out across a range of sort of cultural, practical, everyday things, technical solutions, but also sort of public policy solutions. The hard truth these days is that a lie will make it around the world 10 times before the truth even gets its pants on in the morning. We are living in a world where we have so much information available to us that caters to our particular needs and wants. You can live an entire life these days only reading conservative or liberal media, never having to change your point of view, or whilst foreign memes and trolls help alienate the other side and help push you further and further towards radicalization, creating divisions and cracks that may take generations to fix. As I said at the start of this piece, your vote in a democracy can make all the difference. It decides whether you steer the ship towards an iceberg or towards a safe port. But having the right information to know how to vote can be difficult. There is just so much false information out there at the moment. So please, always check your sources, try to think who might benefit from that decision, check out the person writing the articles, and try and adjust for biases. Fact-checking just might be the thing that brings broken nations back together, as most of the things that tore us apart were either wild exaggerations or straight-up lies. This is something that is only going to get worse, especially when we start introducing better AI and deep fakes into the mix. So now is the time to teach your family, to teach your friends, to teach anyone around you how to identify false facts. The same way we all taught each other to avoid Nigerian princes handing out large sums of money in the early 2000s, now is the time to teach people how to identify false memes. The most important thing though is that the captain of the ship may change, but as passengers, we stay and our fates are intertwined. If the ship goes down, so do we. Turning on one another will not prevent us barreling into the iceberg. Working together and educating ourselves, though, will hopefully help us choose the captain who won't sink the ship. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. This one meant quite a lot to me. This episode is the one-year anniversary of the Red Line. I honestly never expected to get this far. I was honestly going to be happy if it was just myself rambling into a mic for three other people. But it hasn't been that. We are now 28 episodes deep, 28 deep dives, with over 750,000 streams from 124 countries. That boggles my mind. I have met so many fantastic people through this show. With a remark who does our chapter titles, who I met back at episode two, it feels like a lifetime ago or Peter, who was our very first Patreon back at episode 6. Every interview, every DM, every share and retweet has helped us get the show to where it is today. And that's not just me, it's not just Mark, it's not even just Peter. That's you guys who listen to this show. To anyone who helped us out, who guessed it on the show, who listened, who recommended it to a friend, or signed up to our Patreon, I sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. This has been the most interesting year of my life, and that is because of you. Thank you. If you want to take it further and help out the show in other ways, you can support us by liking or following us on social media at the handle at the Redline Pod, 
or you can find myself on Twitter at Mike Elliott Oz. Oz is in Australia. Otherwise, if you want to chuck in even a couple of dollars to help us stay independent and away from Murdoch and chase those big stories, you can donate to our Patreon. Every dollar we earn goes right back into the show, improving the content, chasing bigger stories, and paying our staff to make the show better and better. We even do private Q&As with our members, and I regularly catch up for a beer or coffee one-on-one with our contributors. So if you have any questions or just want to chat, you can sign up to our Patreon and book in a time to get your burning questions answered, or even just chat and I'll give you my best chicken soup recipe. A huge thank you goes out to all of our guests today. Kevin Rudd was the very first Prime Minister I ever voted for personally, the first PM to get me excited about politics. So him taking the time to come on the program meant a huge deal to me. He is currently trying to get a petition signed to start an Australian Royal Commission into Murdoch's influence in our press. And I'm sure whatever they uncover here will be highly relevant to your country as well, with how far the tentacles of Murdoch's media empire reach across the globe. I highly recommend you go check out Kevin Rudd's Twitter for all of the details so you can find out more about this petition. You can find him on Twitter at Mr. K Rudd. Nick Much has been doing so much amazing journalism over the years, whether it be UK politics or Venezuela to the Middle East. Nick has been everywhere working and working and breaking big stories. Even for this interview, he was calling in from a hotel in Djibouti. Nick has been a close personal friend of mine for almost four years now. He was one of the very first people to back the show. I really cannot thank Nick enough for all of his help on this one. Bill Marcello was one of the nicest guys I've ever met whilst working on the show, and his knowledge of PSYOPs is second to none. He gave us an amazing insight into just how foreign actors are looking to crack the stability of enemy nations, and what we can possibly do about it. He wrote an amazing report with the RAND Corporation, which I had a chance to read in advance before the interview, and it is going to be public very soon. So I highly recommend you check that out for a deeper dive into this very pressing situation. You can find him on Twitter at WMMarcello. As always, an additional thanks goes out to my amazing team. Mark Spencer, as I said, has been with this show since pretty close to day one. He does all the chapter titles for us and gave me heaps of advice for podcasting back in the very early days. There is a very good chance Redline would not be where it is today without the help I got from Mark. So for the whole year of help on this one. Thanks, Mark. Joe Hawthorne has also been with us for a number of months now, helping to clean up the audio for these pieces. Joe's work with audio is absolutely fantastic, and I think it is the thing that really helped tune up the show and give it the professionalism we're trying to get to. As always, the last thanks goes out to you for listening to the program. For that, I am most grateful. Watching the stream counter go up and up has been amazing. I've received so many lovely DMs and messages, and that's what motivates me through the nearly 40 hours of work that goes into each and every episode. So thank you. The Red Line will be back in a fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you and good night.